FDR forged a powerful bond with Americans by communicating with him in ways no previous president had. His freewheeling press conferences, eventually totaling almost a thousand, attracted attention. But Roosevelt's greatest communication tool was radio. This new invention revolutionized politics during the 1920s and 30s. For the first time, millions could hear the live voices of national leaders. FDR was a master of radio, using it to bypass the press and speak directly to his fellow citizens. Days after entering office, he began an innovative series of radio addresses that reporters labeled fireside chats. He did not orate, as some other politicians did when confronted by a microphone. Instead, he spoke calmly, conversationally, as if he were actually sitting in his listener's living room. Thousands responded with letters. White House mail jumped from 5,000 letters a week to 50,000. The track you're about to hear is from October 7, 1942, when President Roosevelt spoke at the Herald Tribune Forum. He had just ordered our military to open up a second war front in North Africa. The power of radio during World War II was that it was the only mass media that was immediate for anyone who owned a radio, and that was the vast majority of Americans. So radio helped unite the country during World War II, and FDR knew that and used it in that manner. This is Heirloom Radio. My name is John Lovering, and I thank you for listening. President Franklin D. Roosevelt discusses the government's policy on war news. Speaking to the Herald Tribune Forum and the nation by radio, President Roosevelt outlines the government's policy on war news and reviews some of the highlights in the last two weeks of fighting. Mr. Roosevelt will be presented by Mrs. Ogden Reed, chairman of the forum. Before the forum was undertaken this year, the chief executive of the nation was consulted about the kind of program that might prove useful. Obviously, current war problems could not be discussed, but we believed it important just now, not only as a means of heartening the war effort, but in preparation for the difficult task of reconstruction ahead, to clarify to some extent our ideas for the kind of world for which we are fighting. In closing the Forum of 1942, I feel sure you will all wish to join with me in saluting our Commander-in-Chief, who has so brilliantly affected the start of a second front in North Africa. I have the great honor of presenting to you the President of the United States. Ladies and gentlemen, I have always welcomed the opportunity to participate in the Herald Tribune Forum because I have always been interested in the public presentation of all kinds of national problems. In time of peace, every variety of problem and issue is an interesting subject for public discussion. But in time of war, the American people know that the one all-important job before them is fighting and working to win. Therefore, of necessity, while long-range social and economic problems are by no means forgotten, they are a little like books 
which for the moment we have laid aside in order that we might get out the old atlas to learn the geography of the battle areas. In time of war, your government cannot always give spot news to the people. Nearly everybody understands that and the reason for it. This means that those relatively few people who do have the facts from all over the world, not only every day, but every hour of every day, are somewhat precluded from discussing these facts publicly, except in the most general of terms. If they did, they would almost inevitably say things that would help the people who are trying to destroy us. In reverse, those who are not in possession of all the news must almost inevitably speak from guesswork based on information of doubtless accuracy. Though they do not know the facts and therefore the value of their statements become greatly reduced. Nor must we in the actual progress of the war lend ears to the clamor of politics or criticism from those who, as we know in our hearts, are actuated by political motives. The fact that this type of criticism has done less harm in the United States than might be expected has been due to the good old horse sense of the American people. I know from a somewhat long experience in wartime as well as peacetime that the overwhelming majority of our people know how to discriminate. How to discriminate in their reading and in their radio listening between informed discussion and verbal thrusts in the dark. I think you'll realize that I have made a constant effort as commander-in-chief to keep politics out of the fighting of this war. But I must confess that my foot slipped once. About ten days before the late election day, one of our aircraft carriers was torpedoed in the southwest Pacific. She did not sink at once, but it became clear that she could not make port. She was therefore destroyed by our own forces. We in Washington did not know whether the enemy was aware of her sinking, for there were no Japanese ships near enough to see her go down. You will realize, of course, that the actual knowledge of the loss of enemy ships has a definite bearing on continuing naval operations for some time after the event. We, for instance, know that we have sunk a number of Japanese aircraft carriers, and we know that we have bombed or torpedoed others. We would give a king's ransom to know whether the latter were sunk or were saved, repaired, and put back into commission. However, when we got news of the sinking of this particular ship, a great issue was being raised in the Congress and in the public vehicles of information as to the suppression of news from the fighting front. There was a division of opinion among responsible authorities. Here came my mistake. I yielded to the clamor. I did so partly in realization of the certainty that if the news of the sinking were given out, 
two or three weeks later, it would be publicly charged that the news had been suppressed by me until after the election. Then, shortly thereafter, protests came in. Protests from the admirals in command in the Southwest Pacific and at our great base in Hawaii, on the ground that in all probability the Japanese Navy had no information of the sinking, and that handing them the information on a silver platter, although we were careful not to reveal the name of the carrier, still gave to the Japanese a military advantage which they otherwise would not have had. This confession of mine illustrates to the people of this country the fact that in time of war, the conduct of that war with the aim of victory comes absolutely first. They know that not one of their inalienable rights is taken away through the failure to disclose to them for a reasonable length of time facts. Facts that Hitler and Mussolini and Tojo would give their eye teeth to learn. Facts, therefore, become paramount. Facts that cannot be told to the public at the time, as well as facts that can and should be told at all times. The posters that tell you loose talk costs lives do not exaggerate. Loose talk delays victory. Loose talk is the damp that gets into the powder. We prefer to keep our powder dry. We have a gigantic job to do, all of us, together. Our battle lines today stretch from Kiska to Mormon, from Tunisia to Guadalcanal. These lines will go, grow longer as our forces advance. Yes, we have an uphill fight, and it will continue to be uphill all the way. There can be no coasting to victory. During the past two weeks, we have had a great deal of good news, and it would seem that the turning point of this war has at last been reached. But this is no time for exaltation. There is no time now for anything but fighting and working to win. A few days ago, as our army advanced through North Africa, on the other side of the world, our Navy was fighting what was one of the greatest battles of our history. A very powerful Japanese force was moving at night toward our positions in the Solomon Islands. The spearhead of the force that we sent to intercept the enemy was under the command of Rear Admiral Daniel J. Callahan. He was aboard the leading ship, the cruiser San Francisco. The San Francisco sailed right into the enemy fleet, right through the whole enemy fleet, her guns blazing. She engaged and hit three enemy vessels, sinking one of them. At point-blank range, she engaged an enemy battleship, heavily her superior in size and firepower. She silenced this battleship's big guns and so disabled her 
that she could be sunk by torpedoes from our destroyers and aircraft. The San Francisco herself was hit many times. Admiral Callahan, my close personal friend, and many of his gallant officers and men gave their lives in this battle, but the San Francisco was brought safely back to port by a lieutenant commander, and she will fight again for her country. The commander of the task force of which the San Francisco was a part has recommended that she be the first of our Navy's vessels to be decorated for outstanding service. But there are no citations, no medals, which carry with them such high honor as that accorded to fighting men by the respect of their comrades in arms. The commanding general of the Marines in Guadalcanal, General Vandegrift, yesterday sent a message to the commander of the fleet, Admiral Halsey, saying, we lift our battered helmets in admiration for those who fought magnificently against overwhelming odds and drove the enemy back to crushing defeat. Let us thank God for such men as these. May our nation continue to be worthy of them throughout this war and forever. Ladies and gentlemen, the national anthem tonight, the President of the United States, Franklin D. Roosevelt, spoke to the nation and to the final session of the 11th Forum on Current Affairs, which was held in New York City, under the auspices of the New York Herald Tribune. The President discussed the government's policy on war news and reviewed some of the highlights in the last two weeks of fighting. The President was presented by Mrs. Ogden Reed, Chairman of the Forum.
This is the Columbia Broadcasting System.